know the lyrics to the extended version of every 90s TV theme song? And you recite the entire script to Wayne's World on command, verbatim? Might you wax nostalgic about injuries sustained during backyard wrestling matches? Have you pontificated at length over what beer goes best with Mario Kart? Do you philosophically dwell for inappropriate lengths of time on phenomena like snowsuits, minor five chords, Rocky Four, baseball stats, wall-mounted pencil sharpeners, cinnamon toast crunch, Murray Wilson, seasons two through eight of The Simpsons, Bond villains, then friends, lovers, palindromes, have we got the show for you. It's Calling BS with Brandon and Scott, your esoteric clerics for the fleet of mouth and mind. Brutally honest, meticulously obsessive, and painstakingly pragmatic. Check us out and BS, I love you. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we're discussing Philip Marlowe and Vivian Rutledge from the film The Big Sleep. Todd, we're doing a noir film. I'm so glad. <laughs> we sort of we sort of started with, uh, like, almost noir with Casablanca. That was our very first film ever. Yeah, but it's like noir adjacent. Yes, <laughs> it's it's tangentially noir, like pseudo noir. Yeah. Uh, and we've talked about some neo noir stuff, like uh, Veronica Mars. Mm-hmm. But this is the first uh, real noir film that we've done. Yeah, this is the hard boiled detective, black and white, shadowy world. So good, uh, living between good and evil. And you've talked about noir a lot, and I can't believe it's 130 plus episodes in. We're finally doing a true noir star- yeah. story. And I have seen a lot of noir films, and uh, this is. Very, very, very high on my list. Yeah. Uh, before we carry on with our discussion, Producer Andrew, you said you had something you wanted to throw out there? Yes. So uh, my wife and I have been doing some of the prep work leading up to our our next season of the Disney Animation Minute Essentials. And so I've been listening to a lot of podcasts that talk about a lot of movies, specifically Disney movies. You guys are so smart to do the summary as a separate little segment <laughs> because I have listened to so many things that are trying to do... As we go through the movie, let's talk about the things that we like as we go, as we go, as we go, as we go. And well, just... if you listen to our first 13 episodes, that was how we <laughs> yes. began this podcast. But you are the only people I've listened to that have resolved that problem into I, doing this this summary. I will give a, a shout out to Mission Log, which is a, a Star Trek podcast, which is where I heard this model done first, where they do a little banter, then they do a full recap of the episode without talking about any of the themes, morals, messages, or digging into what's good or bad. And then they then they do all the other discussion. And it was listening to that after, at the same time we were starting this podcast, after, after the first 12 episodes, I said, Todd, I think we need to change up how we're doing it. Yep. It was the right choice, let me tell you. Because I've listened to <laughs> like 15 different podcasts and found their episode on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs just to like see if I like their their tone and their, their camaraderie and, and all that sort of stuff. And... It is so much easier to listen to you guys talk about something once it's summarized, and then it's like, okay, let's actually dig into the things we like, now that we know we've mentioned everything that might come up. Well, I don't know that we always well, mention everything. Yeah. <laughs> we sometimes circle back to something that was left out of the summary, but, but we do our best. It's an excellent touch, so <laughs> wow. I appreciate that you guys do those summaries, which is not easy. A lot of people doing these uh, these movies in an episode are not writing down notes, nor preparing a summary so that they can... <laughs> you know, do it the way you guys. Do. I would just it's, say that it's very good. <laughs> the largest like time investment in prep is writing the summary. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
It's worth it. And I didn't know uh, how I felt about doing the summaries, uh, but I'm I'm totally on board. I think it's I, I agree. Thank you. I think we're still that. learning some of the tricks of doing it too. <laughs> we still tweak some of our methods. And I will say about this. You mean one, it wasn't perfect the first time that I did it with uh, the Quiet Man? <laughs> there, were, there was a learning curve, Tom. <laughs> Not gonna lie, uh, when we were just talking about doing the Big Sleep, which I don't know that I'd ever seen this one. I've seen other film noir, but never mm-hmm. this one. And I know you've seen it several times. And we were talking about who's going to do the summary, and you said, "Why don't you get that one?" You knew what you were doing. To me. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I actually was trying to do you a solid by taking the novel, uh, but, <laughs> but I remembered. Just how convoluted this story is. And, uh, this story is so crazy, but in a great way. I, we're going to talk about how hard it is to resolve some of the plot issues in this. I in no way want any listener to think that is a knock on the film, because it actually is part of the magic of this film. It's noir. part of its charm. So, real quick, listeners, we are talking, as we've said, about The Big Sleep. This is a 1946 film adaptation of the Raymond Chandler novel of the same name. It was directed by Howard Hawks and written by William Faulkner, Lee Brackett, and Jules Furfman. Philip Marlowe is played by Humphrey Bogart, and Lauren Bacall plays Vivian Rutledge. So, how did we come to this? I knew this was an iconic film noir, and I had never watched it. And then I said, Todd, we have to do a film noir. We put film noir, just that, on our schedule. <laughs> and I said, Todd, pick out a film noir film. And you said, The, the Big Sleep. Sleep. So I watched it, and it's great. I'd, I'd seen Humphrey Bogart play versions of this character, and I think this exact character in some other films. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but it was good. And what about you, Todd? Uh, as an undergrad, I took a class called Film Noir and Contemporary Iberian Narrative, and... <laughs> Who didn't have that on their freshman <laughs> orientation packet? You must take this class. It um, it was taught by uh, Greg Stallings at BYU, and it was one of the most amazing classes that I've ever taken. Uh, the The premise of the class is that in the late 1900s, uh, early 2000s, there were lots of writers in Spain that were writing novels that felt like classic American noir films. And so for the class, we read a bunch of contemporary uh, Spanish novels, Iberian novels, and then we watched just a boatload of noir films. And I kind of fell in love with this genre. It's it's kind of hard to explain (laughs) why. My mom today was saying, why do you like these noir films? And I said, I don't really know, but... (laughs) There's something about him that kind of resonates with me, um, and this was good, one of my favorite films. That's a good description of this film. Why do you like it? I don't know, but there's something about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could point at different at different things, and we'll get into it more, but um, but I loved that class. I've taught versions of that class since then, and, uh, and this is one of uh, my favorite films that came out of that. A little bit of trivia before we get into the synopsis. This is adapted from a Raymond Chandler novel. Chandler began writing after he's, he lost his job during the Great Depression, and it turned out... It was a good career move. He is now considered to be either the father or a father, depending on who you ask, but a father of the hard-boiled detective genre. And his character, Philip Marlowe, and Dashiell Hammett's character, Sam Spade, are considered to be the iconic Private Eye characters. And both characters were played by Humphrey Bogart on screen. Uh, Bogart and Lauren Bacall have great chemistry. And after this was filmed, they got married. And she was Humphrey Bogart's fourth wife. He did not always have happy marriages. Jeez. But 
he uh, or their marriage lasted until Bogart died uh, in 1957 from cancer of the esophagus. They had two children, and those are Bogart's only children. And I remember listening to an episode of the podcast called You Must Remember This, which looks at the golden age of Hollywood, and it does all this behind-the-scenes stuff. And I didn't have a chance to go back and re-listen, but I remember vividly, so I hope this is accurate, <laughs> a story that was told on that about after Bogart died, and Lauren McCall and her two children, they were very distraught and grieved. Um, and it was very hard on them. And they, for a while, they just, like, she took a break from filming. And she was in the, in the same house where she lived with Humphrey with her kids. And then on Valentine's Day, one of the kids said, I have an idea, Mommy. Why don't we kill ourselves so we can see Daddy in heaven? And that's when she said, nope, we're moving. <laughs> and oh, my are, gosh. <laughs> that was going to be the Valentine's Day present to Humphrey Bogart. Like, that's how much they were missing him. And she's like, nope, we're moving, and we're we're pulling ourselves out of this, children. Wow. Like, we, we've settled too much into our grief, and we need to, we need to snap out of this. Um, um, but, again, Bogart's marriages weren't all uh, the happiest, but this one seems to have been a, a pretty good one, uh, though it did have some ups and downs. Uh, there are, going back to the movie, there are two versions of this movie, and I don't mean the remake in the 70s, because they did do a remake of yep. Big Sleep. I refer to the fact that uh, the film was filmed in 44, uh, like late 44, early 45. They finished <laughs> filming, but they did, the studio did not release the movie because they wanted to get all of the war films that had been made out before the war ended. They could see <laughs> World War II was wrapping up and they had a backlog of war films. And so this one wasn't a war film. They said, let's hold that in our release schedule until 46. But then in between, the uh, the studio realized that Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall were very popular with audiences. They had made a film called To Have and Have Not, which was a big success. And so they decided to film some scenes and edit it in a different way for a release in 46. And there's actually about um, 20 minutes of difference between the 45 and the 46 versions of the film. Uh, and by all accounts, the 1945 version makes sense. <laughs> makes a lot more sense <laughs> than the 46 version. But the studio seems to have decided that fan anticipation for the pairing of Bogart and Bacall was more marketable than a completely coherent story. That version was thought lost, the 45 version, but it was found in the 90s. And so, like, the DVD I got from the library had both versions on mm -hmm. it, and it had a special feature talking about the differences between the two. Uh, the Big Sleep was originally a 12-reel film, and significant edits and changes were made to reels 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, and 11 in that <laughs> <laughs> when they did the reshoots. The biggest changes were in Reel 7, which was almost entirely reshot. The original version included a large expository scene of Marlowe with the police that sorts out everything we've learned so far and lays out the timeline for the audience. And once that gets removed, it's easy to get lost it's in this It's very story. complicated, yes. <laughs> Even without the editing, editing um, that happened between the the original filming and then the 46 release, though the story was apparently a bit confu confusing. During filming, uh, the director and writers contacted Raymond Chandler to figure out if one character's death was a murder or a suicide, and if it was a murder, who did it? And Raymond Chandler said, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, in 1997, The Big Sleep was added to the National Film Registry, which preserves significant films in American history, and despite the confusing narrative, it has a 96% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and in 2003, AFI released a list of the 100 greatest heroes of film, and Philip Marlowe was number 32 on that list. That's kind of remarkable. Which part? Number th well, all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just an amazing film with an amazing story, kind of like Casablanca. Yeah. 
I just, I think it's astounding that of all of the films that have been made and all of the great characters, uh, that AFI would put Philip Marlowe at number 32, which is really high. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems really high to me. I'm, I, I'm really excited to talk to you more about, um, about Marlowe. Uh, listeners, we would like to remind you that our podcast provides you with over four hours of content every month, and if that's worth a quarter per hour to you, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quickcasts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers, and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss, and we'd like to thank all of our supporters on Patreon for helping us out. All right, are you ready for this perfect synopsis? I am so film? excited to see how you do this. <laughs> okay. Philip Marlowe arrives at the home of General Sternwood. Fantastic name. Marlowe is a private eye, and Sternwood wants to hire him. While waiting to meet the general, Carmen Sternwood, the general's 20-something-ish daughter, flirtatiously throws herself at Marlowe. And I do not mean that symbolically, that she throws herself. She literally throws herself <laughs> into his arms at one point during their she conversation. Says, you're cute. <laughs> Uh, so now Marlowe goes in and he meets with Sternwood, and Sternwood asks what Marlowe knows about the family. In a neat bit of exposition, we learn that Sternwood is a widower millionaire with two daughters, one single, that is Carmen, who we already met, one who is married, but that marriage went bad, and now both daughters, who have wild streaks, are living back in his house. Sternwood says that he's being blackmailed for a second time. Last time, a man named Sean Regan took care of it. But Regan left Sternwood's employ about a month ago. It seems that Carmen Sternwood has some large gambling debts with a bookseller named Arthur Geiger. And Geiger wants these debts settled. Before leaving, Marlowe is stopped by Sternwood's older daughter, Vivian. Vivian asks if her father wants him to find Sean Regan, but Marlowe says no. Marlowe does some research into rare first editions, and then he goes over to Geiger's bookstore. He makes some inquiries with a saleswoman named Agnes, who is aggressively unhelpful. <laughs> That's such a great way to describe her. <laughs> I like Agnes a lot. <laughs> yes. Uh, Marlowe, and Marlowe is like putting on act. He's pretending to be like some snooty book collector. Um, and he asks to see Geiger, but is told that Geiger is not in. So now Marlowe goes to a bookstore across the street and asks the saleswoman if she knows what Geiger looks like. And she tells him to go back across the street and ask to see Geiger. Marlowe admits that he is a private eye on a case. And she now tells him what she knows about Geiger, describing his appearance and saying that he pretends to know about antiques but doesn't know anything. She asks if he's going to stake out Geiger's store. And when he says that's his plan, she coyly closes her store and lets him wait there. She then takes off her glasses and lets down her hair, making Marlowe notice that she is a woman. <laughs> How far back does this cliche go? Because, like, Marlowe is just talking to him. And then she takes off the hair or the, the glasses and lowers her hair. And he's like, whoa. Well, no, he's the one that says... Do you really need? Yeah. And he like points at the glasses, and she's like, "Well." And then she takes them off, and he goes, "Oh." <laughs> it's a so this cliche is a pretty old one. It is a pretty old cliche. Uh, so Marla hangs out just looking out the window at the bookstore across the street. Is that? <laughs> yeah, looking out the window. He says, "I'd rather get wet in here than wet out <laughs> yeah. there." He's got a bottle of rye in his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we cut to him looking out the window. Yes. <laughs> And when Geiger leaves, Marlowe goes out and gets in his car and follows Geiger to his house. Marlowe sees another person go into Geiger's house, and when he checks the car, he realizes that the car belongs to Carmen Sternwood. Marlowe settles in for a stakeout. 
After a while, Marlo sees a flash of light and hears a woman scream. There are gunshots and someone runs out of the house. Marlo goes in and he finds Geiger's body on the floor and Carmen sitting in a chair sort of laughing and crying. She's been drugged. Marlo also finds a hidden camera that is pointed to where Carmen is sitting. Marlo slaps Carmen a couple times to try and get her to come to her senses. But guess what? That doesn't work. <laughs> She's been drugged. Slapping her doesn't do a whole lot. Uh, Marlo- so you think she you think she was dr- she was drugged, not that she was choosing herself. to eat. Well, she has drugs in her system, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's how I should put it. But she Mar- has a drug problem. Marlo clearly goes over and sniffs the drink that she had yes. and notes from his face that there's something in here besides alcohol. It's pretty well established through this film that she has a drug problem. She has a lot of problems. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> drugs being one of them. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I guess it is ambiguous whether she was choosing that or yes. it was done to her. Mm-hmm. So Marlo, he goes around and he realizes the camera has no film in it. He also finds a notebook with a code written in it. You might think this is important. Uh, he takes Carmen home and, where Vivian is awake, and Vivian helps take Carmen inside. Then Marlo goes back to the house, and he finds out that Geiger's body is missing. Dun, dun, dun. That is a great twist. My mom totally called it. <laughs> Today. I love it, though. It's such a great moment. So and, good. It, it, it's one of those twists that I never get tired of. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. That night, while Marlo is trying to crack the code in the notebook, you remember this very important notebook? Yes. Secret code. Uh, a homicide cop stops by to tell him a Sternwood family car is in the bay with a body in it. Marlo wonders if it's Sean Regan, but it's not. It's the family's chauffeur. In the morning, Vivian is at Marlo's office. She has received scandalous photos of Carmen and a blackmail threat. The person wants $5,000 to turn over the negatives. Vivian says she can get $5,000 in cash from a gambler, and Marlo tells her to set it up. Marlo goes back to the Geiger bookstore where things are being packed up. He follows a car leaving from the store and finds out the man who left the store is named Joe Brody. He goes back to Geiger's house, where now he finds Carmen outside the house. <laughs> this house is very She's, like, heavy. kind of hiding <laughs> behind a bush. Um, yeah, there is a lot of uh, coming and going at this <laughs> random house. At this dead man's house. Yes. <laughs> when uh, Marlo and Carmen go into the house... Carmen pretends to not remember what happened last night, but Marlo knows she remembers some of it. Marlo asks if Joe Brody killed Geiger, and she, with a smirk, says yes. A man comes in looking for Geiger. He wants to speak with Marlo and lets Carmen go outside. The man is named Eddie Mars, and he sees blood on the floor and pulls out a gun. Marlo and Mars have a super rapid-fire repartee and exchange of information. I love this scene. The dialogue in this scene is so good. The, all the the writing, like, top to bottom, scene by scene through this film is outstanding. Yeah. Uh, it turns out Mars owned the house and rented it to Geiger. Uh, now we go see Marlo staking out Brody's apartment, and he sees Vivian going in. So now Marlo goes up, and Brody <laughs> pulls a gun on him. <laughs> I love this scene. Okay, so names might be getting confusing for our listeners at this point. So again, Carmen is the younger sister. Vivian is the older sister. Uh, Agnes is the aggressively unhelpful uh, lady from the from the, the first bookstore, bookstore mm-hmm. from Geiger's bookstore, from the rare bookstore, not the one from the bookstore across the street. We never see her again. No, never. Um, so Marlo saw Vivian, the older sister, going up to Joe Brody's house, and Joe Brody we saw uh, Marlo trail after leaving Geiger's bookstore. 
So Marlo gets up there, and Brody pulls a gun on him, and there's no one else in the room. But then, uh, all of a sudden, Agnes and Vivian come out. They were hiding in a back room. Well, he tells them, he says, uh, like, come out from behind the curtain, pointy shoes or something. And then Agnes comes out, and he's like, you too, Vivian. And then she comes out. Yeah. Uh, Marlo says that he is here to stop Vivian from paying off Brody, even though in the earlier scene he told her to set it all up. So I'm not sure what the logic is at this moment. Marlo knows Brody has the picture of Carmen, so Brody must either be guilty of murder, meaning he killed Geiger and grabbed the film out of the camera and ran that night, or he was given the picture by the actual murderer. Now, at this point, Carmen shows up. (laughs) The younger sister... Of whom the pictures are. No. Did I say that correctly? Okay. Of whom the pictures are. The pictures are of her. Right. In a... Scandalous. Quote-unquote Chinese dress. (laughs) Uh, One change from the novel to the film. There's a lot more pornography in the novel. Yes. Apparently. Uh, So Carmen (laughs) shows up... Among other things. Yes. Carmen shows up and points a gun at Joe Brody, demanding her picture back. With some quick thinking and fast action, Marlo ends up with all the guns that are in the room. So everyone's pointing guns, and he didn't have any of them, and all of a sudden he has them all. (laughs) (laughs) And he's got everyone, gun pointed at everyone. Uh, He gets the picture from Brody. He tells Vivian to take Carmen home with the negatives, and they leave. Marlo says Brody is about to be pinned for two murders, Geiger's, and the chauffeur's. Remember, there's a chauffeur body in a car. You don't want to forget that plot point. Uh, the doorbell rings, and Brody answers it in a shot. That's such a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of guns in this sequence. Uh, Marlo chases the shooter, who is someone we saw at the bookstore earlier. Isn't it? Yep. Okay. He's the guy that was packing up the books. Right. So now, Marlo, he runs out, and he gets the drop on the shooter, and he makes the shooter drive him back to Geiger's house. Once again, <laughs> Geiger's back house to Geiger's this house. black hole at the center of this narrative. Sucks everyone in. Uh, the shooter tries to fight Marlo, but that ends up pretty quickly, with Marlo knocking him out and tying him up. When Marlo walks through the house, he finds Geiger's body laid out on the bed, and Marlo calls the police, and they arrest the shooter. For which murder? Uh, Brody. Joe Brody. Right. Okay. I'm trying to keep track of who's being accused of which murder at the moment. Yeah, so we've got Geiger's body now. Yes. Uh, and the chauffeur is dead. Mm-hmm. And we still and have Brody murders is dead. for them. Brody is dead, but we have his killer. Right. Later on, at a bar, Vivian pays Marlo and thanks him for wrapping up the Geiger problem. <laughs> like, oh, you took care of my dad's problem. Here's here's your payment. Right, because that was originally it was he was hired it, to figure out who was, uh, what's up with these debts of right. my daughter. Yeah, and because Geiger's dead, the problem is solved, and, uh... And Marlo did a lot to solve that problem, so he gets paid on the He sort of stumbled around, um... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they flirt until Marlo asks Vivian if Sean Regan ran off with the, ga- the gangster Eddie Mars's wife. Uh, and Vivian gets up in a huff at that point, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marlo goes to see Mars, uh, the gangster, who owned Geiger's house. He asks if Sean Regan was mixed up in all this blackmail business, but Mars says no, that's not true. Uh, Marlo then asks if Sean Regan ran off with Eddie Mars's wife, and Mars tell him to, tells him to stay out of that. Uh, Vivian, it turns out, is racking up a pretty big gambling debt in Mars's casino, but as Marlo is leaving, she hits it big, and she cashes out, but someone tries to rob her, and Marlo saves her. Marlo drives Vivian home, but he stops partway there to grill Vivian. They kiss, but she doesn't answer any of his questions. Back at Marlo's house, uh, Carmen is there, flirting wildly with Marlo, and he kicks her out. <laughs> <laughs> Car- 
Cartman kind of cracks me up in this film. The, uh, the other thing, I don't know if you're going to mention this later on, but the the gambling thing at Mars's place is a setup. It's a total setup, and he knows it, and she knows it, but they don't really say it. Yeah, but <laughs> the guy that's that's trying to steal her money is Mars's guy. So Mars gives her the money in the bar or in the in the in the casino. And then she leaves with the money, and then he steals it from her. But it, everybody kind of already knows that Vivian and Mars are working together on something. On something. You something. have to tell me what that is when <laughs> we get to the end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the next day, the police ask Marlo to lay off the Sternwoods stuff that he's been poking into. Marlo insists that there's something with Mars, Regan, and the Sternwoods that he needs to figure out. Vivian tells Marlo that they found Sean Regan in Mexico, so he can just stop poking around. <laughs> Marlo, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go down there. <laughs> yeah, Marlo checks out a car he thinks has been following him and sees that it belongs to someone named Harry Jones. So new ca- new character being added in once you think the mystery has been partially solved. Right. We can now get Harry Jones. Uh, as he's leaving that car, two men jump Marlo in an alley and beat him up. Harry Jones then comes up and helps Marlo. <laughs> like, <when> he, <laughs> this guy comes up and helps Marlo. Up. He's like, "Hey, I'm Harry Jones. <laughs> I'm the one that's been tailing you." <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jones worked for Brody, who is dead. And he says that Agnes wants to tell Marlo where Mars' wife is, but she wants $200. Marlo agrees to pay, and he goes to meet Jones and Agnes with the money. Once he gets there, Marlo hides when he finds a man has a gun pointed at Jones. Uh, this man wants to know where Agnes is, and Jones tells him an a- address. The man then gives Jones a drink, which is poisoned. Uh, Jones dies. Bogart calls information to try and contact the address that Jones had given, but that was a fake address. Suddenly the phone rings, and it's Agnes calling to see, hey, where's Jones? <laughs> and Bogart kind of heartlessly just says, he won't be speaking with you. He's dead. <laughs> like, that's basically what the line is. <laughs> she says, she says, is Harry there? And he says, uh, yeah, he's right here. And she says, well, can I talk to him? And he says, no. And she says, why? And he goes, because he's dead. That's what it was. <laughs> you might be able to soften that blow, Phil. <laughs> so good. Well, he's mad at Agnes because he likes Harry Jones for yeah. some reason. And the guy's dead now. And he's dead. And he's dead because he, uh, he died trying to protect Agnes. Mm-hmm. And Agnes is totally using Harry just to get a couple hundred bucks from Marlo, uh, from Marlo so that she can skip the skip town. Uh, so in this conversation, though, he arranges to meet Agnes in half an hour. He pays her for the information, and Agnes says that she saw Mars's wife in another city. I can't remember the name of the city, but, like, in an auto shop. Rialito, I think. Yeah. Marlo goes there, and he is jumped by the man who killed Jones. Marlo wakes up, tied up, and Mars's wife, Mona, is standing over him. They never say the name Mona Mars, but I love that name. Is that her name? <laughs> her name is Mona. Oh. Yeah, they <laughs> but, always but, just call but, her Mars's wife. Yeah, but it's Mona Mars. Mona Mars. Such good names. Oh, yeah. man. Uh, Mona. T- it's like, just on the strength of the names alone, it's like 20% of the Rotten Tomato <laughs> score. <laughs> so good. Sternwood and Eddie Mars and... Mona man. Mars. Mona Mars. So good. So good. Uh, Canino. Canino the bad guy. Yes. <laughs> uh, Mona tells Marlo that she does not know where Sean Regan is. So we're still circling the Sean Regan uh, mystery. Then Vivian shows up, and Marlo tells Mona that Mars is a criminal and a gangster. I hope that sentence made sense. <laughs> Marlo told Mona so, that Mars is a criminal. Yeah, so her husband. So Mona's hanging out in this in this house outside of town, 
and we don't really know why she's there, but the big reveal for her is Marlo Bogart telling her that her husband is a gangster, and she's like, no, he's not. He's he's just a casino man. man. He's a businessman, yeah. Because no one who owns a casino has ever been involved right. in any crime. Yeah, he just uh, he just does gambling. Yeah. And Mona storms out of there. Vivian now helps Marlo escape and find a secret gun in his car. He shoots the man who killed Jones. So, is that the first person that Marlo yes. shot? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now Marlo and Vivian go to Geiger's house again. So we're back in Geiger's <laughs> house. Uh, and Marlo calls Mars and says he wants to arrange a meeting. I'm going to head out to Geiger's house. I'll be there in 10 minutes. Or I'll, be, I'll, be there. I'll be there in 40 minutes. Yeah, I'll be there in 40 minutes. And he knows that Mars is going to come try and set a trap for him. But he, you know, Marlo's already there. So this is good, good thinking. Yes. Good yeah, he's a smart guy. Mars uh, comes and he uh, sets a trap for him. He has four men go around the house to watch out for Marlo coming. Then then Mars walks into the house and Marlo already has a gun pointed at Mars. Marlo has figured out that Mars is blackmailing Vivian because Mars knows that Carmen killed Sean Regan when Sean Regan refused Carmen's advances. Carmen is not used to being told no, apparently. No. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, then Marlo fires some shots near Mars, but doesn't actually hit him. He's not trying to. Yeah, he's not him. trying to. He's trying to. He knows. So Mars has all of his bad guys. Yeah, this is the, this is Marlo plotting. all around the outside of the house, and he knows that as soon as they're trigger happy men, right? And as soon as somebody walks out the door, that person is going to get shot. And Even though they're waiting for someone to come into the house, you know you're right. <laughs> They don't know that he's there. Yeah, they don't. So, the, as far as they know, only Eddie But when they Mars, hear the shots, yes. then they know that something has happened. Has happened, yeah. So the, and they're trigger-happy. They're, they're trigger all on guard. Yep. Yep. They got their guns out. No, this is not a hole in the story. <laughs> yes. This is uh, planned. Yeah. So Marlo shoots near Mars, forcing him to run out the front door, and immediately the front door gets riddled with gunshots. And then, uh, so the door closed, we see gunshots appear in the door, and then Mars' body falls back, pushing the door open again. It's with really... No blood. No blood at all. This is the haze code. <laughs> but a really great sequence of filmmaking. Yeah, it is. And uh, then, uh, that's it. That, that's, that's basically it. Uh, Marlo and Vivian have a conversation saying, uh, now we can pin everything on Mars, but Carmen probably needs to get some mental help. <laughs> yeah, so they're going to send uh, Carmen to rehab. Um, and then, and sh- she says, you know, what about us? And he says, well, you know were together, basically. Yes. And then you hear police sirens in the distance, and it ends. And it ends. The end. Two cigarettes. <laughs> Two cigarettes under the uh, under the, the end sign. So, I'm sorry if, you, listeners, you feel like I've left any plot threads dangling. <laughs> this film does not wrap up a lot of things. Right. We still don't understand what happened with the chauffeur at all. Yeah. Which, that is the one that uh, they, they messaged... Raymond Chandler about like hey in this book the chauffeur dies <laughs> what what's up with that he's like I don't know yeah. <laughs> uh, there's like the book with the code that never goes anywhere like mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that get introduced that are interesting but I have to say I don't notice those when I watch the film like I just watched the film enjoyed it and thought that was a great film and then I started to think back on, on plot specifically for writing the summary and I was like wait a second <laughs> what is going on with this thing yeah um, but the the strength of the film is not in the plot. I would say it's not even in the characters. Like, often when we talk about some of the stories we do, we say this is a, a character story. It's about the evolution of the character. Or this is 
a plot story. It's about the fun of watching these yeah. characters do these things. This is all about the tone. It's all yes. about the feel and the style of making this kind of movie. Yeah. So I have two thoughts sort of initially. One is um, about the plot. I think one mistake that uh, viewers can make going into this film is to think that it's a detective film in the kind of in the sense of like a Sherlock Holmes kind of story where it's sort of a game and there's this um, there's an agreement in a true detective story there's an agreement between the author and the reader or the viewer that says we're going to play this game where you're going to try to guess who the killer is and in the end I will tell you who the killer was and it will make sense and you will go oh that was amazing um and that, like, that agreement is broken in this story. <laughs> uh, nobody knows, and even the author himself doesn't really know who the killer is, or it, it's impossible to tie, all, to, to connect all of the dots in the story. It's not the point. Uh, and then the second thing, this thing that you brought up about the feeling, um, there's a, a philosopher, I may have mentioned him, that's at, at Stanford. Uh, his name is uh, Gumbrecht, Seb Gumbrecht. And he... Uh, he's very interested in the period of time uh, right after World War II, um, and he calls it a period of latency, where um, after World War I, World War I was this big trauma, and everyone was like, man, that was terrible, let's talk about it. And so we get all this philosophy that comes out of, um, in, in the 1920s and 1930s, and existentialism, and all of these isms that come out of those uh, those years. And then World War II happens, and we have the Holocaust and the bombs. And in the, the immediate years right after World War II, uh, it's sort of intellectually quiet. It's like nobody even knows what to say. And so there's this period of time that's just sort of quiet. And then... And then, like, moving into the 60s, and you get lots of people talking about stuff again. Uh, and so he's really interested in this time, and he's German, and he likes this term, um, Stimmung, which is uh, a German word that it's it's kind of hard to translate, but it, it has to do with... Um, it's, a, it's a term that's associated with the weather, and um, it's most... probably most closely translated as mood. Uh, but it's the kind of feeling... Uh, that's, it's the kind of mood that's tied to the weather. And it's, uh, he talks about like the lightest possible physical touch. Like when you walk outside and you can feel the weather on your skin in this like very, like almost imperceptible, but totally perceptible. <laughs> uh, that's what he, that's what Stimmung is. And, and there's noir films especially. Uh, are important for this mood that they create, and it feels like that. Like, you know what noir feels like. Uh, and and noir is interesting even if you look at, um, like, definitions of noir. It's kind of hard to pin down what the definition is, but you know it when you feel it. And mm-hmm. and I love uh, The Big Sleep because it's it has that feeling just in spades. It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, um, Roger Ebert, in writing about this, he said that... The Big Sleep is a story about the process of a criminal investigation, not its results. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I mean, those those two things, uh, I think, and then like why this why this tone in these films, and it's it's certainly not the only the only feeling to come out of World War Two, and and to reduce something like <laughs> like that war to one feeling, I think would be 
uh, a mistake, but I think that noir in general, um, and especially this kind of later noir that's coming towards the end of the war, uh, really expresses a certain kind of um, depression that you, one could imagine after going through something like that. And Marlowe is an ex-soldier, um, and uh, I mean, this is in in a lot of ways. I think it's important to see noir as uh, as kind of an emotional response to the trauma of war. And I think it's the, the kind of heroes that we get in noir, the protagonists that we get are very different than what we get in some other genres. Sure. Uh, they tend to be... I mean, Well, I mean, there's this whole rise of these kinds of heroes in American culture in this whole era, but it kind of post-World War One and all the way through this era. But these heroes that are no longer just the good guys or uh, that are battling just the bad guys, these are the heroes that live in the space in between those two. Mm-hmm. Um, they're outsiders. They don't belong with society, but they're working to protect society often. Mm-hmm. And they they don't have the exact same moral code as the good guys, even as they're clearly like marked for viewers as good guys. <laughs> uh, but they also don't have the same moral code as bad guys, but they're willing to use the tools of the bad guys to do good things. Mm-hmm. And like this goes to characters like Batman, uh, who's very different from Superman. Like, Superman remains kind of an iconic good, <laughs> like, like moral, you know, well, depending on the film version <laughs> you're watching, I guess. <laughs> but even in his early adventures, they, there was a little edge to him um, that kind of got, uh, you know, rubbed away in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but Batman is, you know, clearly vigilante operating outside of the law to protect the law. And Marlowe, with these hard-boiled private eyes, they're often ex-cops because they, they couldn't handle being cops because <laughs> they don't yeah. fit in that world. Uh, and they've got their underground contacts. You know, they, they always know some, some bad guys that they can go to for some information and they use violence in a way that the good cops shouldn't use violence uh-huh. often. Uh, but it's always for this greater good. But in this instance with Philip Marlowe, I'm not sure I understand his motivations for why he's pursuing the case as doggedly as he does for as long as he does. Yeah, well, there's there's really like two stories here. The first story is what what's going on with Geiger and that gets kind of wrapped up nicely for him and and then we have the scene where Vivian pays him off and what is it sugar sugars him or something yeah. <laughs> is the term that he uses um and then it's after that that he becomes more persistent with this Sean Regan thing and to the point of the police tell him back off and then he's And the family tells him to back off. And the family tells him to back off. And it's like people telling him to back off. So I I see two big motivations. Maybe three. Uh, One, I think think that he does like Vivian. Yeah. And I think that he has uh, an inkling... He has an intuition that she's involved in this somehow. And that maybe she's in trouble. And so he wants to help her out. So that would be motive number one. Motive number two would be people keep telling him to stop. And I think that there's something inside of him that says, when people tell me to stop, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. (laughs) And so this kind of rebel, like a rebel streak in him. Uh, And then the third one, I think that he's just genuinely curious. Right, uh, but it's not what happened. And so the combination of those three things, I would say, is the motivation behind him pursuing this. Often in mystery stories, our protagonists, when they are doggedly pursuing things, it's because they need to know the truth uh, and, like, justice, like, those things. I don't think he's pursuing justice. No. At all. 
it might be truth, but it's not even like truth like needs to be in the light of day. It's like, I just need to know <laughs> for me. Well, he needs to know and he wants to make sure that Vivian's going to be okay. And, and he knows that she's kind of in over her head with Mars. And so he knows that he knows that Vivian is connected to Mars. He knows that Mars is bad news. And so he's going to do everything that he can to help her out of that. And in fact, in the end, he doesn't really care about the truth at all. Yeah. And he's willing to pin whatever on anybody That's as what long as it you. doesn't get pinned on Vivian. Yeah, what is his motivation? It's not truth. It's not even being paid for this because he keeps going after her. So that's why I'm, I'm, I see what you mean about Vivian. Like, that seems to be... Maybe it's because that's the final shot. Like, yes. we want those two to get together. Um, but I don't know that that's been his motivation the whole time. It, it's just interesting to try and work out. And again, this isn't about the character arc of... Uh, you know, of Bogey's character. It's not yeah. about the character arc of Vivian either. It's about telling this really moody story with really moody lighting, with characters who say great dialogue to each other in really evocative <laughs> ways. Like, just very, yes. you know, like watching them speak. Like, I wish everyone spoke <laughs> it's with, with that patter. From the very beginning, from the from the scene when um, we get the, so you, the, you get the initial scene with Carmen, and then you get the long conversation with Sternwood where he's getting hotter and hotter and sweating and sweating and sweating. And then he comes out of that, and then when he walks into Vivian's room and they kind of go at each other, this um, repartee is, I mean, it's just astounding. Like, the writing is so good, and she's, I don't like your manners. And he's, I don't like them either. I grieve over them long, long cold nights. Or, I mean, it's, just, it's so, so, so good. But, um... I think that the I think that this idea of loneliness and isolation is key in noir, uh, and often in noir films, uh, you'll see a protagonist who is totally isolated, and in their own kind of strange way, <laughs> the noir films are about people trying to uh, trying to connect, and they do it. They go about it in the in the strangest possible ways. <laughs> And it's it's all of this like attachment seeking behavior that um, y- you or I or most people would say you know that's like really not super healthy. <laughs> um, and, you know if if you're in love with somebody, there are ways to go about saying you know I care about you. Let's go get a drink or something. And they they don't go n- noir heroes don't go about forming relationships in typical ways. But I think one pattern that I see in noir films, and I see it certainly here, is uh, a hero who's totally isolated and is trying in their own way to bridge that gap between them and somebody else. And, and in, in this case, it's between him and Vivian. Although you also see these kind of moments of like tenderness with, with Jonesy, for example, when, jo- when Jones dies. And he's really kind of been out of shape about it. And and like why does he why does he latch on to Jones when he doesn't with some other people? He really likes the taxi driver lady, um, who's really cool, and I really yeah. like her a lot. <laughs> this is uh, I, like a few of these things are markers that this film was made when the war was still happening. Mm-hmm. Like all the women in professional roles. Yes, that was a marker of World War Two era uh-huh. films. Um, and then after the war, we get this reset, and then slowly we get the feminist movement that kind of says women can do any of these roles. But during World War Two era, obviously women were doing these jobs because men were yeah. often out at war, and you see it in the films at the time. And I, th- I think the taxi driver lady is hilarious. She is very funny. 
And he gives her what is she? they're all flirtatious. What, yeah. Everybody flirts with him. Oh yeah, he's 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 the guy that walks in, and the women immediately are all you know look him up and full down. attention. Yeah, yeah, like talk about the objectifying gaze. Yeah, uh, like in this film, it's totally flipped on its head, and uh, and the the objectifying gaze is towards Marlo from all of these women. But I think one of my favorite lines is um, the taxi driver when. She gives him the card. She says, if you ever need me, give me a call. And she gives him the card. And he, and he says, do you work day or night? He and says, day or night. Right? And she says, well, uh, I work days, so nights are better. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, he he has these moments where it's like he's trying to connect with somebody, the, the girl in the bookstore. Um, he, I think that there's kind of... Uh, I don't, I don't want to like overplay this, but I feel like the way that he treats the taxi driver lady is kind of sweet. Um, the way that he deals with Jonesy and then certainly with Vivian. Um, and even with Carmen, like he cares about Carmen enough to say she needs to get some help, you know? Like, and I don't want her to have a murder pin on her that she probably committed that we're not 100% sure. Yeah, <laughs> but she was, you know, she was probably high and. On drugs, so <laughs> let's excuse that. <laughs> So, but, but what's interesting about this is this is a noir film that ends with them together. And so yes. often in noir films, the main character is, again, he, he doesn't belong in society, right? And right. society, the marker in, in so many, like going back to cowboy films and noir films and superhero films, they're all the same kind of character uh-huh. that's operating in this liminal space between uh, criminality and, and proper society. And proper society get, tends to get marked by families and children, women and children. And that's what the, the hero is protecting. And the hero can never have that thing. Because sure. then he'd be moving away from the space where he operates into the safe space mm-hmm. of, of proper society. And this film ends with those two together. Now, she, uh, there's well, so many together. markers. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many markers of this that maybe this is going to be the same wholesome relationship that you know the heroes tend to protect in these films. Yeah. Um, she, for the there, she's a divorced woman, but she, she's not really divorced. She still has his name, right? She's separated right. from him. So it wouldn't be a traditional relationship. And she's not a traditional woman, right? She's no. she's heavily involved with gangsters, mm-hmm. um, and, and so maybe they can they can make this work in a way that allows them to still operate within that that space. But typically in noir films, and again, like classic cowboy, the cowboy riding off into the west, mm-hmm. he you know away from families. The noir guy has the femme fatale that comes into his life, but she's out of life by the end of the story. Right, and like the classic Batman, like does he have? You know, is he ever going to marry anyone? No, he's not because yeah. he's Batman. Uh, and when you see this this attachment, I mean, I, I I I just it's so clear to me that the noir hero, especially, is looking for attachment. And in this film, it's like he sort of gets it in the end. Um, although, as you've pointed out, I think rightly. Uh, it's not a traditional relationship, and the chances of this, you know, <laughs> turning into what Bogart and Bacall actually had, which is, you know, a couple of kids and a couple decades and, and together, a, a decade together, yeah. um, happily. I mean, I don't know that 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 Marlo and and Vivian can can do that, <laughs> um, but but I think it's important. So one one thing that I was thinking about is we talk about the hero's journey almost every episode in this film because it's so important to storytelling. Uh, and one, kind of the model for film noir is not uh, the hero. So normally, the hero gets called on a journey, uh, on an adventure, he crosses a threshold, he has a moment of crisis, and then we have this return back, 
And in noir, you n- you never get the return. You just you hit the moment of crisis, and then you just spiral downward farther, into, farther, farther. Yeah, <laughs> and and you just get it, it's this idea of getting sucked into something um, is the image that you have with noir. It's part of what creates that that mood in the film is that it, you have a character who should be sort of master of his world or her world. Um, and I mean, Marlowe's a good detective, and everybody knows that he's a good detective. That's why Sternwood hires him. And he does he does his detective thing, and he's supremely confident as he moves through. But as as the story moves along, he starts to realize that he understands less and less of what's going on. He sort of gets sucked into things that it just doesn't make any sense and and you get you know the body's gone and then the door opens and somebody gets shot and then he's ru- running for his life and it's this idea of getting sucked like literally sucked down into something into Geiger's house in this case <laughs> yes into Geiger's house like you can't escape from this this uh this thing that's happening and um and this another big difference between uh, like a a typical hero and a noir hero is that noir hero doesn't really ever escape from the bottom of the of mm-hmm. the of the hero's journey, and and in this case, you know they're together at the end, but it's hard to it's hard to make a really strong case that says yeah, yeah like he's great, he's triumphed as a hero. Mm-hmm. And, well, and again, because he's he's covering up a murder, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's he's got he's called the police to pin a murder on someone who didn't commit it, who's, yeah. who's dead. So you know, well, what, what does he care? Um, I think there's something interesting. I'm not sure what it is about Geiger's house. Like, we keep coming back to this. And, again, houses and families tend to be, like, domesticity. This is what's being protected. Yes. And this is a, a complete, um, like, a facade, right? Like, what happens in that house is criminal. There's pornography that's being right. made. Uh, there's drugs that are being taken. Uh, there's the dead body. But this is also where they end up together in their final kind of domestic scene. <laughs> it's, that's so... It, it's such a good point. It's Marlo and Vivian hugging inside a quaint house with a little fence around it. It's all know. exoticized on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's got the bead curtains. The outside is beautiful. There's a little bridge that goes across and a little picket fence. And uh, and it's part of a, a typical suburban neighborhood. Yes, and yeah. the inside is just... Um, it's just totally corrupt. Yes. <laughs> and it's all... Um, yeah, like the hidden camera inside of the statue the bust. thing. Yeah, the, the bust. hidden camera's inside of a classic, like art- artistic bust of mm-hmm. a Greek kind of figure. Yeah, and it's there are all of these markers of um, the exotic mm-hmm. in this. No real markers of domesticity or yeah. homeliness. Even the fireplace is kind of odd shaped and I mean, looks like, like a fireplace out of the Lord of the Rings or something. And even not. Uh, <laughs> like it's odd and something that stood out to me, like the light switch is behind a curtain. Like you've got to move a curtain to find the light switch. Like there's just things that are off about this. And I think it is they're saying something about like hypocrisy, yeah, uh, and appearances, and um, you know what's what's respectable on the outside uh-huh. might not be on the inside. Uh, and it, it's the perfect, it, it makes sense that this is where Marlo and Vivian end up together. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. So I had one thing that I wanted to ask you, and this is, uh, this, this stood out to me, uh, just this time. I, I've seen this film, like I said, um, four or five times or more. Um, and the very opening scene of, uh, Marlo and, and Sternwood. And Sternwood is this old man. And he's in a wheelchair, and he has to live in a greenhouse where it's warm because his body. He says he says he has no blood left in his body, um, 
<clears throat> and he can't drink and he can't smoke, but he likes to watch other people do it. Because he loved his vices when he could. Because he loved his vices. And seeing Sternwood and Marlowe talking to each other, I felt like like Sternwood is Marlowe's future. That that Marlowe is seeing himself in the future. Uh, because he also drinks, he also smokes. A lot. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> he does not go anywhere without alcohol on him. <laughs> he has these vices. I mean, he lives this, like, devil-may-care kind of mm-hmm. existence. And it, there, it, there's Mars and then Brody right after that. Is it Brody? I think Mars and Brody both tell him within, like, five minutes in the film. They both tell him, you take chances, Marlo. And, I mean, he lives like that. Like, he's an, kind of an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> yeah. And you get the feeling. This is why I say it's hard for me to imagine that, that his relationship with Vivian is really real. Or that it's really going to last very long because I feel like he's just going to move on to the next thing when he gets a chance mm-hmm. because that's what he does. He takes chances. Yeah, he can't settle down. <clears throat> and so when I saw when I saw them having this conversation at the beginning, I felt like I think I think Sternwood is Marlowe is future Marlowe, just sucked dry, and you know your body just is going to give way eventually getting beat up all the time and mm-hmm. shot at and um i mean he has to know that it's not it's not a healthy lifestyle that he's yeah. living well they let him, all that he has more than some other characters they let him show some of his aches and pains yeah um like it, towards the end he's he's holding himself awkwardly because he's been worked over i did like so he gets beat up in the alley and it's it's like three punches and then he's he's down on the ground and then uh it's jones that comes up right and jones says that's the worst working over I've ever seen. <laughs> like, I hit the face once in the gut once, and maybe once on the back. Well, he gets beat up. It's... I know. I just thought that was pretty, like, I think you could have seen worse in your lifetime. Well, <laughs> Tailing people for the mob. gets back to the to the Hayes Code, right? Because yeah. if somebody, I mean, even if you took the number of blows, yeah, like, blow for blow in a film today or a TV show today, there would be way more blood than we see from this. Like the, it's almost the film is almost bloodless. There's a, there's a spot of blood on the floor, and I think on his chin. One and time. he gets a little bit on his chin at the very end of the film. But other than that, yeah. for a film as violent as this film is, there is practically no blood. And so I think that's part of the reason why we sort yeah. of chuckle when he says, "Man, I've never seen anybody get worked over like that." Because you can turn on the TV at 7 p.m. any night of the week. And you can see somebody getting interrogated by the police and, you know, they've got a split lip and a bloody nose and yeah. whatever. And we just don't see that. And so I think that's part of the reason that we laugh. But they they beat him up pretty good. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I will say there were a couple of good punch takes. I don't know that the alley beat up was one of the best punch takes in this. <laughs> but there was uh, when he punches, when he punches, uh, who does he, it, 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 Lauren recalls next to him when he punches someone. And I'm like, that was a really good punch. Like, it just looked real uh, when they're out by the cars. Is, no, he doesn't punch Canino. I'm, I'm sorry, listeners. We'll move on. Just know there's one really good punch from, <laughs> from Bogart. Uh, one other thing that I had, just I know we're, we're running low on time. I loved the moment when he ran out to his car, and it was like a spy gadget car. Like he found a hidden button yes. and pressed it, and this panel dropped down with a gun in it. Two guns. Yeah. So I was like, is this like proto James Bond car? Yeah, it sure is. He's got a big gun and a little gun. Yeah. I, I just love that moment <laughs> yeah. as uh, something that stood out when I was watching this. Um, I think that's most of the notes that I had. Um, if you are going to watch this, listeners, just go along for the ride. Don't try and work out the logic. There is an article that I found when I was doing a little research. It's from denofgeek.com. Denofgeek? Yes. 
and it is called The Big Sleep, Proof That Plot Does Not Matter. <laughs> and the whole article is about how this film is amazing, and then they spend like several paragraphs trying to untangle who murdered whom and what the motivations are for the characters, and they're like, just stop. Just, <laughs> it, it doesn't matter at all uh, for this film, which there's something about it that makes it work. Like, I'd say 99 out of 100 times, if there's a film with as many plot issues as this have, it's just gonna, it has, it's going to be a frustrating viewing experience, and it's not going to be considered a classic. It would never enter the, the U.S. film registry. It would not have a 90-plus rating on Rotten Tomatoes. But whatever the magical mix is that allowed this film to, like, stand up despite those plot issues, it worked beautifully in this film. And it, it's the acting, it's the writing, it's the directing, it's the lighting. Uh, you know, all these noir elements come together, and there's this alchemical mix yes. in this one film that works. And again, like, if you try to do anything like this today, or even if you were trying to do these things in the 40s, 99 out of 100 times it doesn't work. But somehow it worked in this one. Well, I think uh, part of it is, I wonder if, um, I mean, it takes a lot of guts to write a detective story. And as the writer, for you to say... I don't really know, and I don't really care who the who the killer is, right? Yeah. And that to me, that's key because if and I, I, the earlier version of this has more exposition and more kind of trying to put all the pieces together, and I assume that if you really tried, you could probably put most of the pieces together, and then the plot would make. Some I'd say kind most, of sense. but not all. <laughs> it would make some kind of sense, but uh, but to just go into it saying it just doesn't even matter. Because sometimes life just doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. and and you can you can imagine that feeling coming out of something like World War II, when you've seen so much death, and um, and, well, the, and like, this is why we like all film noir in this rise. Like I said, these are heroes who don't have the traditional moral code because people are questioning the traditional moral code. Right? Like, what is meaning when we've seen the amount of the scale of death that can happen at, in the Holocaust and with the dropping of the atomic bombs? Right. And, and the world, like, the, the world just doesn't make sense anymore. And so it, it, it totally makes sense for me to have coming out of these, out of that time period, uh, these films that are about a world that doesn't really make sense. And there's a heavy cynicism. And characters sort of trying to do the best that they can, given the hand that they've been dealt. Uh, probably, all of them probably struggling with some form of, uh, post-traumatic stress and and turning to drinking and struggling to form traditional healthy relationships um, and just kind of finding work that is the you know the best that they can do uh, given the circumstances and um, and so the the noir as a genre it makes sense to me given its context mm-hmm. um, if you spend too much time in this, it can become very depressing. <laughs> uh, but every once in a while to just sort of um, dip, for me to dip back into it and and just to, to feel that mood again, um, I don't know, it's like, it's like walking, it's like walking outside in, in the rain. Like, if you walk outside in the rain all the time, then you're going to get catch cold. <laughs> but every once in a while, it's it's okay to just, you know, like let it wash over you and... And feel that stimmung, like feel that mood, that yeah. kind of sad, somber, dark mood, and and remember that this is, you know, this is life for <laughs> sometimes, yeah. sometimes. I'm not even gonna say for some people. I'm just gonna say this is life sometimes. Yeah, 
And I love this kind of character. Like I said, you find it in Old West Cowboys. You find it in Hardboiled Detectives. You find it in Superheroes. You find it in modern shows like Jack Bauer from 24 is 100% mm-hmm. this kind of character. Or House. Uh, you know, it's, it's the medical version of this kind of character. I love watching these characters who are broken and separate but are trying to do something <laughs> and, and trying to protect people who aren't broken like they yeah. are. Uh, and and they, they seem to know, I don't belong in that world, but that that's a world worth protecting. And I think yeah. even as we say, there's huge loads of cynicism and pessimism that just permeate a lot of these films and a lot of these kinds of characters. I think there's something kind of noble and beautiful about that move to say, I don't fit in that better world, but I'm going to do everything I can to fix it yeah. and make sure that it stays there. I think we get we get these just tiny glimpses of people who are dealing with this in a different way, mm-hmm. and I, and I also like that about this film. Uh, the 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 girl in the bookstore, not Agnes. Agnes is, I mean, Agnes feels terrible, and she's when she's complaining about Joe. Mm-hmm. I love that scene when they're all together mm-hmm. and like, shut up, no, you shut up, no, you. Sh- you're making all of this worse, and Agnes is in the back. And she's like, you're just a pain in my what what now like. <laughs> But she just like Agnes. Agnes has a hard. She's dealt a hard deck. But the taxi driver girl, like she's just happy, and she's doing her best, and she's got a big smile on her face. And uh, and the girl in the bookstore, she's smart, and she does her job well. And um, and I, those two kind of moments of sunshine in this otherwise <laughs> like really bleak world, um, I, I think they add something important to the film also. Real quick, uh, last question. What, like, we, we agree, Philip Marlowe and Vivian are probably not going to end up together. Philip's future was written in Sternwood. What is Vivian's future? I don't know. Probably a female version of that, or, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what the female version of that, of old Sternwood looks like. General, mm-hmm. the general. Yeah. <laughs> but again, like, right, the general, like, he's come out of the war, and he's just completely broken. And, um... I mean, there's something really sad. Like, also, you can imagine that part of the reason why his daughters are so broken is because he's so broken. Because he's so broken. And he, and he does not. He seem was like gone. He was a good father. He was not a good father. He was gone. And and when he was there, it seems like he was indulging his most personal vices. Yeah. Well, he was gone being a general. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, <laughs> this is not the only way to approach the post-war like we also saw a general in white christmas who is also kind of struggling with trying to find his place in the world uh, but we we see a different kind of effort made <laughs> to make his life better um and i don't think that any one of these films is like to say no it was all like white christmas or no it was all like the big sleeper no it was all like another film that we have to talk about at some point um uh singing in the rain which is also a few years after this, but another fantastic film dealing with pretty close to the same time period in another like dramatically different way. And I think it's, it's an error to say one of these films captures the whole essence of what, what was going on in the U S at that time. But to see all of them together, I think paint starts to paint kind of a picture of what many people were going through and different ways in which different people dealt with it. And, and I don't think any of them should be discounted, uh, for being too depressing or for being too happy. (laughs) Uh, they're all really important. I don't know what Vivian's future looks like. (laughs) I, it doesn't seem bright to me. 
Um, she doesn't seem like she has some great, uh, like, come-to-Jesus moment where she realizes the errors of her ways, and now they're going to change. Like, And I also don't see, what, like, talking about Marla's motivation, I don't know what's going to motivate, what's her next goal in life? <laughs> it survived. They're together, but they're yeah. not even, they're not even, like, let's get away and find a quiet place and, you know... Like, settle down, life. get out no. of this crazy, there's never that conversation. No. It's, it kind of reminds me of our conversation about Sonny in um, The Apostle. Like, there's just never a moment where we see them show any inkling that they really want to change. And so it's hard to imagine anything except that they're kind of like s- stones tossed into space. <laughs> and that they'll just continue on this trajectory until until their life's blood is spent. And whatever that looks like, whether that means, um, you know, like dying of venereal disease or something, <laughs> or or like being pumped full of lead by, you know, some deal that's gone wrong. Like you just open a door and you get shot. Or just getting old and and increasingly ill and not being able to really enjoy any any part of life except to look at other people and wish that you could drink their drinks and smoke their cigarettes. And <laughs> it's just sad depressing thing and and i i love it <laughs> what else to say like like i said watching this film like i just enjoyed watching this story and if you start to tug on the threads that make up the story it unravels totally. but I, I don't care <laughs> like it, it still stands up as a movie worth watching and yeah. there's a reason this is a standard classic. Like, if you ever take a film class, you're going to watch either this or Maltese Falcon to try and understand the yeah. film noir. Um, th- this is a classic, and it deserves that status, even as we've kind of picked at it during this discussion. But that's the point. The point of the film is that the thing unravels, that none of it makes sense, that it's like holding, trying to hold water in your hands. Like, it, it, it doesn't work, and it's not supposed to work. And so rather than saying, like, we're here picking at nits or, you know, picking the story apart. Like, the story was never meant to hold together anyways. And so as you pick at it and it falls apart, the author is not going, oh, my gosh, they're picking my story apart. He's going, they discovered a exactly, right? Like, <laughs> he's saying, exactly, that's my point. It doesn't make sense. The point is that life is violent and that life is messy. It has messy. false starts. It has false starts. It has false leads. Uh, it's mostly, I mean, I'm sure that if you talk to Raymond Chandler, he would probably say, you know, life is mostly full of people that are dishonest and, (laughs) and that it's pretty bleak and it doesn't really make a lot of sense trying to put people's motivations, you know, like Mm -hmm. put clear motivations to people doesn't really work. And so what you get is this. Yeah. Heroes who are maybe doing good things, but for selfish reasons that are going to cover up a murder because it's easier. (laughs) And because they feel like the murderer maybe doesn't deserve to get put away. And I feel like we should say, I mean, I, I, I think it bears mentioning that many noir films are based on noir novels and noir novels come earlier. And so to say that all of noir is born out of World War II mm-hmm. would be a mistake because noir noir films start in Maltese Falcon but is like noir 1937, pulp is, 1938 is, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but noir pulp fiction is in the late 20s and right. noir novels are in the 30s. So I just, so I'm, I'm sure that there's somebody out there who's going to be screaming. like well actually <laughs> saying uh, that all of this comes from way before and I'm well aware of that. Um, but I, but, but there's no denying. But post-war yeah. is significant. Like that's when it was embraced and became mainstream. Right. All right, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. 
Thank you for joining us, and please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in Apple Podcasts, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We've gotten some new reviews lately, and we definitely appreciate those. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 59, when we talked about Veronica Mars, or episode number 3, way back at the beginning, when we talked about Casablanca. Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast, where we have really good conversations with our listeners, and we would love any comments and feedback that we get there. If you would like to support the show financially, please go to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers, maybe a couple weeks or months after they're newly released, but we get them up there. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. Are you uh, getting lots of texts? They're they're all just texts about tacos. <laughs> she can be asked to choose a flavor. Uh, no, I already told her I want tacos al pastor. <clears throat> oh, those are good. I know, and they're from this place called Chungas in Salt Lake. That are is if you ever get a chance, Chungas. 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 Okay. Esther doesn't like Mexican food. Really? She won't eat it. Well, she wouldn't like Chungas. <laughs> <laughs> <If> she... <laughs> <laughs> If she's ever like, oh, man, gone for part of a weekend, that's when you get Mexican food. I, I get nachos from Costa Vida on my way home from work for Friday night. And you you consider that Mexican food? Well, she won't let me. Have it. <laughs> it's I a Mexican food for her there. So it's... All right, where was I? Have you guys had the street tacos that are on the corner of? Uh... Where are street tacos? Yes. Where? So, um, on the corner of 5th West and um, Center Street in Provo. In Provo? There's like a fresh market something on the corner there. Mm. And there's a I there's a taco have... truck in the corner, on, on the corner, and they're pretty good tacos. All right. I love street tacos. Oh. There was, in Mexico, there's this fantastic street taco quesadilla place. And then one time we went and we got so sick. <laughs> <laughs> But it was so good. <laughs> I mean, that you went back. We went back. And this was this was a zone leader meeting, so it was the entire office. Oh. And all we were wiped out. <laughs> were you like a, like in uh, Parks and Rec? <laughs> well, I remember the first day, one of us had gotten sick, and I was like, you're not sick. And then one of us had walked to the bathroom, saw the door, and was like, oh, he's sick. <laughs> Once it hits you, <laughs> there's no. Then you but it was so good. We still, we still in there. Find some emodium. <laughs>